Back in October, Aaron and I were joined by Gazan poet, writer, translator, and professor Rafat Al-Arir. On December 6th, Rafat was killed by the Israeli army in what looks like a targeted attack. The 44-year-old father of six was killed in his sister's apartment. Only his sister's apartment was bombed. The entire rest of the building was not. On today's show, I'm joined by two Gazan writers, Mohammed Shahada, a writer and analyst originally from Gaza, who is now based in Sweden. He was on the same episode that we did with Rafat back in October. I'm also joined by Youssef M. Al-Jamal, who is a Palestinian refugee from Gaza, now based in Turkey. He has been involved on numerous book projects and is also a contributor to Gaza Writes Back, which was edited by Rafat, and Light in Gaza. Mohammed joins us from Egypt for reasons you'll shortly understand. So please enjoy this special episode of Useful Idiots, where we honor the life and legacy of Rafat Alarir. Mohammed and Youssef, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for having us. And I'm so sorry for your loss. Can you tell us about how you got to know Rafat? So I got to know Rifat in 2007. I was his student. I um, attended two of his classes and we became friends um, since then. We became close friends when we traveled together to um, Malaysia by chance. I happened to travel on the same day. Um, Rifat also left Gaza and we were on the same plane heading um, to, to Kuala Lumpur. Um, where Rafat took me um, in his house for three weeks because I didn't have a place. And I got to live with him for three weeks. And I got to see, you know, another side of him um, as, you know, like a human being away from the formalities of um, a student and a teacher. Um, He took care of me. He uh, even gave me um, some money um, that I gave him back later uh, because I didn't have enough money. At the time, he supported me in all possible ways. And then we, uh, I contributed a short story called Omar X to Gaza Rice Back, which uh, Rifat edited in 2014. And we traveled to the United States to eight different cities talking about Gaza Rice Back and storytelling. Uh, so we spent a whole month together traveling. And, you know, during that time, too, I also got to know Rifat more closely Um, and throughout the years you know I lived for two years and in Malaysia Rifat was there for about four years and um, we also traveled throughout uh, Malaysia together there was the Malay translation of Gaza Rice Back Um, we spoke at different places and uh, we became very close Uh, since then we've been in touch uh, even um, three days before he was killed, he sent me a text on, on WhatsApp. So he was many things to me. He was my teacher. He was my mentor. He was my friend. Um, I have left Gaza together with Muhammad seven years ago, almost about the same time in October 2013. And uh, Rifat also checked on my family when I was not there. Rifat was very kind, very, very talented. He had a mission to tell Gaza's story to the world. And you, Mohammed? 
Well, I met I met Trefa through Yusuf, but first, sorry about my background. As I explained earlier, I had to rush to Cairo last minute to meet my some members of my family that managed to come out. And the way I met Trefat, it was through Yusuf and uh, some intellectual discussions. But the time I met him, that was around 2014-15. It was right after his home and his family's home were bombed in Operation Protective Edge by Israel. And about 30 members of his and his wife's families were killed in, in that war by Israeli aircrafts and, and ground troops. And I've seen how it changed him. But at the same time, I admired how it did not destroy him. Because to lose a home in Gaza, what it means is basically a generational effort, a generational work is, is co completely burned down and reduced to ashes. It's people that were kicked out of their homes in the Palestinian Nakba of 1948 that laid the first brick with the little money they had and then their children or the entire family, quite literally every single member of the family, would lay another brick on top of another brick until it turns into a home. The home in Gaza means literal generational work of every single member of the family. Anyone that can contribute it would put and lay another brick on top of another. You have a median income in Gaza, $1,200 per year, that's per year, where a house, it would be on average, it would cost maybe something about $50,000. You're talking about decades of building, uh, just uh, having a roof on your head, and that being completely gone. I've seen how it destroyed people in ways that are completely unspeakable. I even had a classmate whose home was bombed around the same time as Refat. And every time he came to university, he was consumed, and I would say fully understandably, he was consumed by pure rage and anger and hatred, not just to Israel, but to everyone and everything, to the Egyptians, to Hamas, to the PA, to the Europeans, the Americans, Canada, whatever country, you name it, even to us, his classmates, because he would always say that every single one of you, you go back to a home with a roof on your head. I, I just go back and sit on a piece of rock in a tent waiting for it to be rebuilt. It, it never did and it never does. And what was admirable about Refat is that after his home was bombed and 30 members of his and his wife's families were, were killed by Israel, he still maintained his pride, his dignity and composure. I know he was criticized for um, a few instances where he said something that in to an, a foreign audience may be interpreted as controversial, but I would say that um, in Rifat's case, any people trying to judge a murdered man should first put themselves in his shoes and think how they would have reacted and what their lives would have looked like living only one week for any of those people judging and moral pandering a murdered man it would drive them absolutely insane. By the, just the sheer noise of Israeli predator drones on top of your head 24-7, something that Refat was very keen to highlight, this sound that is, gets loudest at night when you try to sleep because all noises have gone down, and Israel controls the altitude. It can bring it further down to terrorize the population. This has been the, the situation for the last 17 years. Coupled with not having a life, no past, no present, no future, and having a population where almost everyone I know has had suicidal thoughts, 
because of it, because of the situation, because of the way the situation in Gaza is. Any of those people lecturing and and engaging in moral pandering about a murdered man would have not lasted a week without either bearing arms or contemplating suicide. And Refat, he didn't either. He just turned to a book. He, he took a pen and started writing. And that's what, what I find admirable about his character is that it didn't break him down, no matter what Israel threw his way. Even in this war, when so many of his family and loved ones were being murdered, he continued to try to amplify Gaza's voice, tried to speak up and to do so while also, as Yusuf said, to be caring about fellow Palestinians that he knows, friends and family. I know a friend, Rami, who um, wrote passionately about Refat, said that in the middle of the war, Refat went out to try to check on his office and some the initiative that he built for young people in Gaza. And he sent him pictures of it. And Rami went so mad against him. He said, why would you even do that? The planes are on top of your head. You're a moving target. You could have gotten killed. And Refat even saw the, the guard of the building was, was staying around. And Refat had walked away for like maybe 10 minutes. Then he turned back and went back to the guy and gave him some money and, and some food. So it speaks to his character that no matter what was thrown at him, and no matter how ugly and atrocious life in Gaza has been turned into under 17 years of Israeli blockade punctuated by periodic military assaults, it did not turn him into a radical. He maintained his calm, composure, and demeanor, and he, he maintained his productivity and creativity to be able to write poetry in Gaza, even for me. The last time I wrote a poem, although I used to do so in my childhood a lot, and when I was a teenager and early on in university, I used to compete in these sort of local competitions and, and win first place on the level of the west of Gaza and in universities as well. And But 2014 was the last time. That's Operation Protective Edge. It broke me, and I'm not afraid to admit it. But it, it did not break Refat. He continued to be productive in that way. And that I think I, I have to respect, even though... We disagreed a lot, and even though he criticized me, and Yusuf knows that, he criticized me quite a lot in, in some instances where we disagreed. He didn't shy away from calling me out publicly. But I was one of the very first to go out and mourn him. I was crying when I learned the news. And every time I see his face, it's the same. I'm, I'm in total disbelief that he's gone. But I'm even more outraged at the way that he was killed and murdered in broad daylight where, where everybody else is either completely silent or trying to justify it and spin it around. You know, Rifaat um, presented a pure Palestinian narrative. He did not have filters. He told his own story based on his own beliefs and his own experience. Um, growing up in Shuja'iyah neighborhood uh, to the east of Gaza City, um, their land was taken in 1948. It did not start with the Israeli siege on Gaza. Indeed, his uncle was killed under torture in Israeli jails. Rifat himself was shot three times during the first Palestinian Intifada. And his parents survived um, Israeli killing uh, in the first Intifada too. Um, at the same time, he lost his uh, his other uncle was also killed uh, by um, um, Israeli gunmen at uh, one of the kibbutz to the east of of Shijaiya, um, 
and his brother was also killed by Israel. As Muhammad mentioned, 30 members of um, his extended family, and, and Rifat wrote about this, and his wife's family were also killed. Uh, Rifat believed in, in the power of storytelling because for him, you know, as Palestinians, we have to tell our own story without filters. We're not, you know, shy from our narrative. We have a very unique narrative. And he wanted to tell this narrative to the world that we are victims of settler colonialism. We're refugees in Gaza. We uh, live in a uh, an open air prison that was turned into a concentration ta- uh, camp, and now it's uh, turning into an extermination camp. Rifat never shied away, and he had a great sense of humor. And sometimes his humor was very dark. Because our reality in Gaza is very dark. Um, and, you know, this is just Rifa's story. is the story of every single one in, in, in Gaza. is a story. My family, Muhammad's family, every single Palestinian, uh, generations of Palestinians have been tortured by, by Israel, uh, collectively punished. Um, and therefore, Rifa wanted to tell his story, uh, which is very unique and very courageous. Um, writing, you know, articles, poems, um, features, but also encouraging his students. And this is the most important thing that he, his legacy is that he turned a whole generation, he gave them a pen and made them believe that they can write and tell their story away from filters, without filters. Uh, Rifat never wrote to uh, please, you know, um, a Western audience. He wrote as a Palestinian from Gaza um, who knows his history, his vision, uh, and understanding of history. Um, he was unapologetic. Um, his dark humor also was part of our conversations when he spoke to his friends. People would sometimes think that, um, you know, there is an abusive relationship between these friends. Even with me, I have a story that I cannot share online. Um, this is, we know Rifat very well. He was the, um, you know, the, the climax of human decency. Um, despite what, what happened to, to him, as Muhammad explained and I explained, he, he um, chose to, to write and uh, to, you know, Introduce Gaza to the world in a way. Uh, he created a blog in 2010, I think, 2011. One of the first blogs ever coming out of Gaza called Gaza, This is Gaza, where he actually published um, If I Must Die for the First Time. So it's not a new poem, indeed. It was published almost um, 12 years ago uh, on his blog, but he penned this poem to his ex-timeline in November. Maybe he, he felt like his life might be um, cut short uh, because of his activism. Um, again, he, he believed in the power of narrative and storytelling and he traveled the world, but he returned back to Gaza. He, he refused to leave Gaza City. He had the chance to, to leave Gaza, but you know, Rifat was very much attached to Gaza was able to be at any university in the world teaching literature with his uh, qualifications. Uh, one of the smartest people in, in Gaza, in Palestine, but he chose Gaza and uh, he, he loved his students. He, he loved us 
for, for real and we loved him and that's why you see the outrage about his killing it's because we we feel like we have been orphaned in a way here's an amazing reading of his poem if i must die by the actor brian cox if i must die by rifat alaria november the 1st 2023 If I must die, you must live to tell my story, to sell my things, to buy a piece of cloth and some strings. Make it white with a long tail, so that a child somewhere in Gaza, while looking heaven in the eye, awaiting his dad who left in a blaze and bid no one farewell, not even to his flesh, not even to himself, sees the kite. My kite you made flying up above and thinks for a moment an angel is there bringing back love. If I must die, let it bring hope. Let it be a tale. Yeah, I, I saw that Rifat loved Shakespeare and one of the students uh, joked that he put um, Shakespeare's uh, novels under his pillow when he sleeps and when when he heard the joke, he laughed. He was very humble. He would sometimes even accept feedback from his own students hmm. um, if they correct him, which uh, rarely happened. Um, he he was very um, available to to everyone. He he made everyone that he he gave them the uh, needed time and space to express themselves, even though he was always running and fast and busy because he had a lot of things to do. Always. He, he never turned anyone back. Um, there are hundreds of students who wrote to him, who wrote articles, who translated works, and he checked their, their work. And, you know, he, was, he didn't have to do that. It was not part of his teaching job to, to do much of what he did. But then it's different when you have someone with a mission and someone who teaches um, for a salary. And Rifat had a mission in life, and I think he was very successful in his mission. Although he lived uh, a short life because of the barbarity of Israel. I think Israel, um, you know, tries to, to to kill in us Palestinians what they do not have. They do not have someone like Rifat. Someone might say, oh, but there are also Israeli poets. Yes, we do know that. There are also Israeli writers. Yes, we know that. In fact, Rifat um, taught Israeli poetry in his class in Gaza. And he... Uh, introduce his students to characters like Shylock in Missions of Venice and made them sympathize with Shylock. Um, and he wrote a poem titled, I Am You, which gets into the psyche of Israeli soldiers killing Palestinians. This is Rifat. Uh, we know this very well. Is Israelis cannot you know, produce someone like Rifat simply because Rifat was not living on a stolen um, home in, in Gaza. We actually have video footage of someone at a vigil for Rafat after he was killed reading that poem that you just call that you just referred to. I am you. Two steps. One, two. Look in the mirror. The horror, the horror. The butt of your M16 on my cheekbone. The yellow patch it left. The bullet-shaped scar expanding like a swastika, sneaking across my face. The heartache flowing out of my eyes, dripping out of my mouth. 
out of my nostrils, piercing my ears, flooding the place like it did to you 70 years ago or so. I am just you. I am your past, haunting your present and your future. I strive like you did. I fight like you did. I resist like you resisted. And for a moment, I take your tenacity as a model. Were you not holding the barrel of the gun between my two bleeding eyes? One, two. The very same gun, the very same bullet that had killed your mom and killed your dad is being used against me by you. Mark this bullet and mark it in your gun. If you sniff it, it has your and my blood. It has my present and your past. It has my present, it has your future. That's why we are twins. Same life track, same weapon, same suffering. Same facial expressions drawn on the face of the killer. Same everything, except that in your case, the victim has evolved backward into a victimizer. I tell you, I am you, except that I am not the you of now. I do not hate you. I want to help you stop hating and killing me. I tell you, the noise of your machine gun renders you deaf. The smell of the powder beats that of my blood. The sparks disfigure my facial expressions. Would you stop shooting for a moment, would you? All you have to do is close your eyes. Seeing these days blinds our hearts. So close your eyes tightly that you can see in your mind's eye. Then look into the mirror. One, two. I am you. I am your past. And killing me, you kill you. Rifat and I visited in New York in 2014 uh, with Rawan Yaghi as part of Gaza Rights Back. And uh, our friend Jihad Abu Salim took us around New York City we did some tourist stuff and we walked over the Brooklyn Bridge and Rifat engraved the name of his town, Shija'iyah, on the bridge. He always loved Shija'iyah. In fact, he called Chicago the Shija'iyah of right. uh, the United States and he called New York the Zaytun of uh, uh, New York, uh, the United States because there's this competition also between Shija'iyah and Zaytun, yeah. the same competition we have between Chicago and uh, New York. He enjoyed life. He brought life, he brought joy to our life and to everyone who knew him. Um, I remember how he reacted to the um, deep dish pizza in Chicago. Yeah. And like, whenever we traveled, he left a great uh, impact and memory. Uh, he made friends. He was very kind to children. Uh, I have like dozens of stories to tell from these, um, you know, talks that we give in the United States and how Rifat was able to impact people because he, he talked to them in universal terms. Uh, and in a way, he brought, you know, the people accountable. He told them, you know, this is our life. And we chose to write. Gaza Rice Back is, uh, was Rifat's uh, uh, creation, like in terms of uh, title uh, from uh, the Empire Rights Back. Uh, right. So he wanted to tell people also that Gaza can write. And can we, can you guys, um, either Yusuf or Muhammad, talk about the circumstances surrounding his murder, what we know about it? Uh, because I spoke to his son today, and um, so Rifat. Rifat's apartment was bombed in October. And I think that was also another attempt 
at his life that he survived because of his activism on on Twitter. Um, but then he had to move to different houses and different shelters in Gaza. Um, he went to a school, to a medical facility and a hospital. He was at the Rantisho Hospital when it was raided. And he took his kids and wife and he, he went to another place. He was moving around. Even when he was at the uh, Rantisho Hospital, he wrote articles, he tweeted, he he was he was volunteering. He was all over the place. He was very active. Um, but eventually he ended up in a school uh, with his family. And he got a call uh, from the Israeli army telling him that we know where you are and we will get you. So he left the school and he went to his sister's house in a Daraj neighborhood. And Israel targeted the house intentionally to kill Rafat on December 6th. Um, so his brother Salah was also killed and uh, Salah's son was also killed and Rifa's sister was also killed and three of her kids. Um, so, you know, the whole family um, were basically like were targeted uh, and they were killed with, with Rifat. Uh, but then we asked the same question that we've been asking did Israel kill Rifat for real? My answer is no, because Rifat is a poem. Rifat is a word. Rifat is an article. Uh, Rifat is a novel, is a chapter in a book. Uh, Rifat is Gaza writes back. Rifat is Gaza in silence. So his words and legacy will live on. You will see Rifat in his students. There are hundreds of students that Rifat uh, you know, trained in Gaza. Um, so Rifat is not gone, and we, we will never feel that, you know, he's gone, and we'll never refer to him as, uh, you know, someone who, who lived and is no longer there. Rifat is immortal, uh, and his legacy will continue to live on. And how is his son? He had six kids. Today I spoke with Ahmed. Uh, he has six, six kids, as you said, and all of them are sheltering at the same school. Um, it was very noisy. There are a lot of people there. I just told him that uh, Rifat's poem was translated into hundreds of languages and people are carrying his pictures and his poem and his words all over the world from London to Chicago to New York to Melbourne. Rifat is, is remembered and there are a lot of people like if there is uh, no blackout in Gaza, you would be receiving hundreds of calls. Everyone is talking about Rifat. It's been a week, but Twitter is still talking about Rifat. And this is, you know, I wanted them to know about how people reacted to this because there is a blackout in Gaza. And they cannot tell, like, they cannot watch the news. Um, so, but again, Rifat was also, you know, a father of six and, um, his uh, eldest kid is 20, probably. And uh, uh, it's very tragic for the family that they, they had to lose their father at a very young age. No, I think he received a number of death threats from prominent Israeli uh, sources, including from famous journalists. If you look at the screenshot that he took, it included one um, Israeli that was identified as a prominent journalist. And I was informed about that by some Israeli friends. But it's not only him. We've seen Rifat's story being repeated systematically throughout this war. In fact, in, in the first week of the war, there was um, 
one of the main targets of Israel. It was a doctor, a medical doctor called Omar Firwan. He was my neighbor. And he was bombed directly. The house itself was the target. And it was not just him that was killed. It was him, his wife, his daughters, their children and husbands. Entire family is wiped out. Nobody left behind to pick up the bodies, which has been now the case that led to uh, the digging of mass graves. My colleagues documented about 120 of these, either people that were not identified or entire families that were completely wiped out and gone. Now, with Refat's targeting, it was extraordinary in a way because uh, the way that he was called out early on in the war in this very vicious, systematic manner that he was immediately dehumanized and attacked for writing. Um, you can call it a dark joke. You can call it controversial. It's up to you to comment on it the way you want. David Afune tweeted out, a baby was found in an oven, baked to death by Hamas terrorists, leading Israeli first responder Eli Beer uh, recounted to an RJC gathering last night. His group was among the first to respond to and witness the October 7th atrocities. And Rafat, quote, tweeted that with or without baking powder, because he was mocking what we now know, of course, and what he knew at that point was a lie. So that was his crime, right? People were more upset about his joke about a non-existent baked baby than than they were about, obviously, actual thousands of babies killed by Israel. So Barry Weiss was one of those people, and she tweeted... She quote she tweeted a, a screenshot of that and said, "Here's Rafat Al-Arir joking about whether or not an Israeli baby burned alive in an oven was cooked with or without baking powder." And um, Rafat himself tweeted out, um, "If I get killed by Israeli bombs or my family is harmed, I blame Barry Weiss and her likes. Many maniacal Israeli soldiers already bombing Gaza." take these lies and smear seriously and they act upon them. And then he had a screenshot of disgusting comments like um, send me your address. We are going to wipe you out in Gaza. When we get to Gaza, I personally will rape raw dog, your old mother. I'm going to expand your mom, wife and child rectum in front of your uh, someone else wrote kill yourself. Someone else wrote, you are a pure Nazi and, and you will end up exactly like them, rest assured. Yes. And I think on that particular day, Refat knew that he was just a dead man walking. It was clear in his words. It was clear on his voice after. But it was also clear that he, he was refusing to give up until the last minute. But on that particular incident, I know a lot of people were upset about that tweet. And judging by... Um, from their comfortable seats and, and the safety and, and comfort of their homes with water, electricity, food, and everything. But I would say if you were in Gaza and you immediately saw this extremely bizarre, insane, and repulsive horror stories and propaganda thrown at you with the explicit goal of dehumanizing and justifying your murder, your reaction would not be so kind. Especially if some of these first stories were at the time, debunked and called out okay. to be unsubstantiated and unproven. So the story of the 40 beheaded babies that preceded that one, and Biden repeated it so confidently, and now we know against the advice of his own people, yeah. of his own intelligence sources, he and went out and repeated it. twice since then. Exactly. Twice since then, making a total of three yeah. times. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how those people sleep at night. The only pathological explanation I have is psychopathy. But I, th I think I, I hope that they would at some point look themselves in the mirror. But with Biden in particular, yes, so that incident on that particular day, I, I started crying uncontrollably when he said it. And I started puking and it my innards arrived in horror that this might have been a possibility. And then a few hours later, we learned that, no, he didn't have any knowledge whatsoever. He just read it in Israeli news. And then a few days later, we hear that it's unsubstantiated and people start in the, in, in the Israeli government and military start saying that this is unproven. And within a few days, we learn that it was only one baby that was killed. So after all that, to see someone throwing at you a word of a baby baked in an oven, and it was not only presented in that, in that light, if you look at an Israeli right-wing celebrity, she's called Carolyn Blake, very close to Netanyahu. She made a video one time in 2010 mocking and celebrating the siege on Gaza, the literal starvation of children, men, and women. She made a video clip having fun with it. So the same woman, she writes that the baby was put in an oven at the same time that the mother was being systematically raped by a group of militants that shot the father in the head and then we're laughing hysterically while pointing to the mother to look at her baby being baked in an oven. That's the way that she presented it and the way that it immediately started to fly around in Israeli circles. So to have this thrown at you, you can call Refat's reaction a dark joke, a bad joke or controversial, but from someone in Gaza at that particular moment where his home is bombed and his loved ones are being killed, his re I would say his reaction would be would be seen in a totally different light for anyone being in his shoes. And it's not punishable by death, no matter what you think of it. Precisely. And I don't think it's a big deal. It's just dark humor about something that's used as propaganda, atrocity propaganda, like you said, to justify genocide. Yeah, yeah, but to be on the receiving end of that propaganda, to see that right. being thrown at you and then a bomb thrown next to you, your reaction wouldn't be so kind. Right. But the other thing, the interest, another interesting tweet that Refat wrote is being used to dehumanize him. It's all the way from 2012, something where he writes that the majority of Jews are complicit in our demise, and it's only a minority that's not. And that is being used also to systematically call him out and dehumanize him. But if you look at uh, an American journalist, Max Numenthal, he met Refat shortly afterwards, and Refat Max, he wrote in his own book that Refat told me this was his Malcolm X moment. Because for someone in Gaza, Israel always yeah, deliberately conflates its existence and its actions with world Jews, with the Jewish population, our brothers and sisters around the world, and says that this is the Jewish state, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people defending themselves. So living in Gaza without interacting with any, this would be sort of a, a usual, or I wouldn't say usual, but it would be a present sentiment among some elements of society. But you can see that as soon as he met someone from outside Gaza, that changed him completely, and he was not ashamed to admit it and to have it on record. And I think it's also interesting, there's an article about Refat in the New York Times. They wrote a feature about him that at, at the beginning, they glorified him for teaching Hebrew Israeli poets to his classroom. And then they added an editor note because they realized that, okay, four years ago, he taught the exact same poem, but he was not very fond of the author. 
he was critical of the author. And Refat at the time, he explained to the New York Times something that I think is very genuine to his person. He said the mind can bear two conflicting thoughts. You can call this poem beautiful, or you can teach it to learn about the other side and admire the, the core of it or the author. But at the same time, you have the feelings of resentment or anger or rage towards that other side. So holding two opposing thoughts in, in one's mind is very rare these days. And as you said, no matter what, it does not justify murder. To For people to take lightly a crime of murder, one of the most, if not the most single, most atrocious crime in, in human history, it's very insane. It's very bizarre. But to see this collective dehumanization of my entire population, my family and loved ones, to see even people that I broke bread with, people that I worked with, Israelis or Americans or Europeans, to see them expecting me to cheer and resign and accept and endorse and actively speak in favor of the demise of my own people, or otherwise I'm, I'm standing with the enemy or propagating Hamas propaganda, it's very atrocious. And it's not less atrocious than the bombs being dropped on Gaza. Mohammed, can you tell us where you're joining from and why you're joining us from there? So I'm basically joining from Cairo. I had to rush here last minute because my grandmother, 75 years old, managed to come out. Uh, her home was bombed early on in the war. The home itself was bombed, so no target underneath. It was bombed from above, not from not anything in the bottom, not anything suspicious underneath it. And her home was completely wiped out. And so were the homes of every single member of my immediate and even extended family. I had to go and check on my distant cousins. It was the same case. And for the last two months, I've been worried sick about her and, and the rest of my family in Gaza. So they, she was stuck in Hanunis in a small apartment with about uh, 60 people. Um, and they basically survived of a small loaf of bread, a small piece of pita bread that they had to cut in half and eat a half um, every few hours. And that was the first and last meal of the day with a little bit of, of thyme, spices on top, if they can find any of that. And if they can find one or two dates, that was luxury. That was basically her life for at least the last two months. And then she had to be, she had to run again and flee. Fleeing in Gaza is now mainly done on foot. So Israel entered Hanunis in early December, the beginning of it, and they started kicking everyone out towards Rafah. That's the city closest to Egypt in the very south. And she had to walk all the way there to stay and sit in a tent um, just out in the open and without food, water, or shelter with her daughter and her daughter husband and, and her grandchildren. It was very painful. And we were resigning to the fact that they may not make it alive. But she made it, um, her and one of her granddaughters, not the rest of the family, they are still in Gaza. So I had to basically rush here. And it's way more painful to see it in person, what this war has done to her. She basically, before the war, she was a healthy, beautiful woman. Uh, she would always wear her jewelry and Palestinian embroidery dress, dresses all the time and be very proud of it. And she came out of Gaza basically skin and bone with her feet and legs swollen up. 
who are still trying to figure out a proper course of medical treatment, but the way she looked, her skin so pale and turning yellow, her eyes are gouged almost in. She looks permanently shocked and petrified. My family's immediate impression were to tell me that you have to come immediately because she may not live that long. I hope this is not um, correct. I hope that um, she will be able to recover. But to think of all the people that are left behind in Gaza and what they are going through every single day is worse than hell. It's worse than the description of hell that we have in our tradition. And that's why I have a friend, a very close friend in Deir el-Balah in to the south of Gaza, who told me if there is a judgment day, if there's a God, if Israelis were to stand trial in God's court in the afterlife, I would ask for one punishment against the soldiers that destroyed my home and forced me out and starved me for months and months and months. That they just go out every day, forever, permanently, to look for water and food and nothing else. The pure pain and horror of their journey, especially with fighter jets bombing everywhere around you, gunfire everywhere, the smell of gunpowder and explosives, and the smoke of the rubbles, the dust of the rubbles covering up everything. That is pure hell on earth, quite literally. Why do you think they killed him? Were they humiliated by that tweet? Did they feel like they couldn't let him get away with having tweeted that? Was it because he was publishing work, uh, tweets in English and publishing work in English because he was teaching so many people? What is it? Because as we, as you said, this was a targeted, as you and Mohammed have said, this was a targeted killing. In fact, they didn't bomb the whole building that his sister's family was in. They just bombed her apartment. Um, Rifat was killed for the same reason Hussein Kanafani was killed. Hussein Kanafani was a Palestinian novelist, um, very powerful, who lived for a year after Nakba in Shuja'iya, and Shuja'iya is Rifat's uh, hometown. He was killed in Beirut in 19, uh, I think, 72 or 71 by an Israeli exclusive. Um, that also killed his niece because of his writings. Uh, he wrote many novels and stories, short stories, uh, Men in the Sun. In fact, Rifat taught us his novels in, in uh, Gaza when uh, we took some classes with, with him. And Lassan Kanafali still lives today through his writing. So by killing you know, a novelist, uh, you never kill them. It's, it's, their words continue to live. And this is also the case for Rifat. His words will continue to live. Hassan Kanafani did not tweet anything. Uh, we did not have Twitter, but both Rifat and Hassan Kanafani lived in Shija'iya and they had a powerful impact on, on people through their writings. And that's why Rifat was killed. And there are multiple journalists, dozens of journalists, uh, intellectuals, doctors, especially doctors with uh, rare you know, specialties who, who were killed in Gaza. And it's all planned and systematic. It's not random. Israel is killing the best of us, the, the best of, of our society, the best of our intellectuals, the same as they're imprisoning the best of um, our people in, in Israeli jails, political prisoners. Uh, so it's part of caging our, having control our, over our bodies. Uh, 
either by you know imprisoning us but if not possible then killing us and that's why Rafat was killed Rafat was killed because his pin was uh, as sharp as a sword and uh, Rafat was our writer our storyteller our poet from Gaza and the protector of our narrative our storyteller Gaza's storyteller and that's why they they killed him they didn't want uh, us to have uh, a story they want their own narrative the, the their own narrative and the only narrative to be and that you know we we do not have a, any any side of the story and that's why they also targeted uh, the uh, Omari mosque one of the oldest in, in, in the world that used to be a church and a temple they're targeting gaza's history they they targeted the um, archive of uh, the municipality of gaza uh, gaza is one of the oldest uh, cities in the world uh, thousands of uh, years of, of history so they're trying to erase our memory and rifat was part of our memory but then you know in the past Gaza was also destroyed and reduced to, to rubble. And the um, symbol of the municipality of Gaza is the phoenix, which is a bird that lived in Arabia for hundreds of years. And it's a symbol of rising from the uh, ashes. And uh, they, they will not be able, although they might be able to reduce Gaza uh, into rubble. Uh, and we've seen this. And Rifat actually told me and. Uh, our last communication that the destruction he has seen is similar to World War II. They might be able to do that. Um, they might destroy our homes and our lives, but then will they be able to eliminate us completely? No. Throughout history, they tried in 1948, and we remained. Uh, in Jerusalem, they're trying and we remain. We are the majority today between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. Um, they could not do it in the past and they will not be able to do it now. Um, this uh, genocide in Gaza will be a catastrophic PR uh, for, for Israel. Um, people, More people are aware of what's happening to the Palestinian people. And we will have to look at history we are not the only people who face genocide and extermination. But we, at the end of the day, um, it's colonized people who live under settler colonialism who emerge victorious, not the other way around. But again, during this process, there will be uh, assassinations and deaths and tragedies brought upon the indigenous people by the colonizers. Um, we did not choose our occupation and settler colonialism. We grew up under occupation. We live under occupation, not above it. But, you know, despite as Palestinian novelists, they were even annoyed by the Palestine Rice Festival in, in Philadelphia in September. They, they, our mere existence uh, hurts them. And um, as Palestinian novelists, who at, Ibrahim Nasrallah, who attended the festival, said um, after in, in, in one of his novels, after all these years under occupation, we are still beautiful, as if we live above occupation, not under it. Youssef, I know that you have lost family members. Um, I was reading one of your stories about your sister. Can you talk about that? I mean, uh, what is going on in Gaza? 
did not start on October 7. It started 75 years ago with the ethnic cleansing of Palestine and the creation of Israel and the ruin of the Palestinian people. Um, this is a fact, and 70% of Gaza's population are refugees. And Israel has always tried to depopulate Gaza in 1967, 1969, in 1971 and 82. They always had plans, but they failed. And I hope they failed this time too. Um, but Gaza has turned into an open-air prison over the years, especially after 2006, 2007. And Israel established a regime of um, permits to collectively punish Palestinians and isolate them from one another. So my mother comes from the West Bank, and um, because she changed her address to Gaza, she became a Gazan in Israel's eyes, and she was given a Gaza ID, and she had to give up her West Bank ID. And every time she needed to travel to the West Bank, she needed an Israeli permit. And it took her 12 years to see her, her family. And the same applies to Palestinian patients because of the uh, weak health infrastructure that was rendered weak and uh, um, poor because of Israel's targeting of hospitals, medical staff. People ha had to, to apply for permits to travel to Jerusalem and sometimes in the past to Israel to have treatment because even minor surgeries are not available in Gaza. We are completely dependent on Israel. And Israel, you know, Israeli offices have the system of issuing permits and delays and rejecting people. So my sister needed a, um, a permit to have a minor surgery that was not available in Gaza. And after a week of waiting at the hospital, she got a rejection. And uh, when she was able to leave Gaza to Egypt at the time, because of Palestinian politics, the Rafah crossing was shut down. It was too late. Once she arrived in Cairo and she had the surgery, she lost her life. And bringing her body back to Gaza was also a struggle. My aunt and dad were with her. They would, you know, drive in an ambulance and try to get her body into into Gaza, fifty miles every day for two days, and they would be sent back. And the third day, they were allowed to enter Gaza through the Israeli-controlled Kerem Shalom crossing. And as my uh, father entered Gaza, an Israeli soldier saw him and he was crying, and he, he asked him, "Why do you cry? All of us will die." You know, these are the same soldiers who um, caused her death by besieging Gaza. So this is, you know, our life. And uh, even during this genocide, I also list, uh, lost a dozen of uh, my extended family. And uh, this is the story of if, if every, we say that my family is lucky because they did not have to relocate. They're still in the South. They're, we, uh, they did not leave their home. But again, finding food and water. And I, today I spoke to my mom she was um, baking bread on fire when Israel bombed a nearby house and the debris fell on her head. And my, my brother had to, to rush and take her inside. So this is their life. Bombing is everywhere and they do not have food. They do not have access to water. Diseases are like spreading like fire among um, overpopulated you know, houses. And everything is is uh, very expensive. It's sometimes ten times um, the original price. A sack of uh, 
flour uh, would cost uh, around ten dollars uh, before October seven. But today, I know it's like thirty-five shekels. Today, you wouldn't get it for uh, five hundred shekels. That's like um, fifteen times more than the, the original price. So um, it's it's unbelievable, and uh, it's almost like one hundred and fifty dollars. That's because even in the south there's no enough aid for people um even basic you know necessity so this is the struggle of of people today it's a continuing struggle since 1948 and what israel is doing today is a continuation of what they did in 1948 if you look at uh, you know targeting water resources trucks in gaza today it reminds me of poisoning water wells in 1948 to Forced Palestinian villages and peasants out of their towns and villages, and they did that, and it's documented by Israeli historian uh, Ilan Pape. So it, it doesn't come as a surprise, but again, this time because of media and coverage and social media, more people are aware of what Israel is doing in, in, in Gaza. You know, mass arrests of of people, seeing it and then claiming that they're. Palestinian militants, it's just like lies after lies. Uh, today, they published a picture of four young men with, with guns as if they were like handing over their, their guns and surrendering to the Israeli army. And it was revealed that these were Palestinians. I mean, they did it multiple times in the past. In addition to using Palestinians as a human shields, um, they forced Palestinian civilians to, to carry guns. And one of the people who appeared in, in the picture published today by the Israeli army was, in fact, um, a trainee doctor. Uh, another um, social media friend called Abdel Hakim said that the Israeli army, an Israeli officer, came to him and he told him, I'm going to send you to heaven. Uh, I'll find you a bride there. And then he took him and he forced him to wear an explosive um, uh, belt and he put a camera on his head and he threw him in in a Hamas tunnel because again he used him as a human shield and if they were like explosives this Palestinian poor Palestinian young man would die Um, and then he had to walk inside the uh, tunnel for 40 meters before he pulled him out again and it's on Twitter I, I retweeted that and this is what what's happening to the Palestinian people. It's a continuation of ethnic cleansing. I'm so sorry, by the way, for what has happened to your family and friends. Um, do you have anything else that you want to share about Rafat, the work you're doing? I think the uh, legacy of, of Rafat, um, we see it today in dozens of vigils organized in his memory everywhere in the world in his writing and the reaction of people, translations of his poetry and poems. Um, there are some trolls, paid trolls, um, who try to create a different um, legacy. And again, this is a continuation of Rifat's assassination. This is a character assassination, uh, which is part of the parcel of his actual assassination. Uh, but again, we have to remember Rifat as a person of joy. Uh, he was loved by thousands of people. Uh, and he would continue to live in, in the hearts of his students and the minds of his students. And we will continue to see his legacy in his writing, 
his, uh, you know, articles and poems. Uh, he's everywhere in the world. If they wanted to carry Rifat, now Rifat is in at least 260 languages. His poem was translated into 260 languages at least. Uh, he, he's everywhere. There are many people who, who know him. Rifat is in New York subway, in, in the subway system. You find his poetry and, and writings and his own, you know, all these kites, white kites uh, flying over the world that he wanted to, to fly over Gaza, but now flying over uh, all over the world. Uh, th- that's, you know, a, a clear example that um, by killing Rifat, Israel did not kill Rifat. In fact, Rifat uh, multiplied. Yes, yeah, Susan Abu Hawa, the great novelist, said that. Um, She said that when Berta Cáceres was killed in Honduras, that's what they say. She didn't die. She multiplied. And and then Susan said the same about Rafat. And it's definitely true. But it's just awful that he had to not be here. If we don't want to say he was killed, let's say he's no longer. He's here, but he's not here. He's not physically here, but he he will continue to live and in our hearts and minds and we we feel that he's watching over us every time i write an article i feel like rifat is editing this article um his you know legacy and influence uh, is a huge and i think more people will get to know rifat in the future it's not just like the reaction to his killing it's been a week and people are still talking about him and everyone wants to read what he wrote uh, his legacy rifat will be remembered for for decades and generations and i think there is no uh, more honorable you know death and killing than um, you know although it's a tragic but then rifat did not choose to to, to to die, he said, if I must die, meaning that if I get killed, um, he was a person of life, of, of joy. Uh, if we look at the outcome of that, is that he's everywhere now. And uh, I think this is what he wanted for people to tell his story and for his death to become a tale. And now it's a tale and it's a beautiful tale that everyone is, is narrating uh, uh, from Hawaii to to Melbourne, all over the world, Rifat is remembered and is seen in, in, in his works and his students and his legacy. And I am very proud to, to have known him in, in person, but I'm proud the most that I was his student one day. And everyone should read um, Yousef's writing because it's great. I invite everyone to read Rifat's writing, Light in Gaza, uh, he has a chapter there. He has a number of journal articles. You can find them on Google Scholar. He he also edited Gaza Rights Back and Gaza and Silence, and he has a blog. Please read his writings on, on Mundo Wise, the Ele- Electronic Intifada, um, on, on his blog. Uh, please spread the word about Rifat, and let's, let's uh, see his words all over walls all over streets, all over the world. Let's see his kites, uh, you know, flying um, over the world. Let it be hope, let it be a tale as he wanted. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. 
For extended episodes, bonus content, and our weekly Thursday Throwdown episode, please subscribe at UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. Support the show for free by subscribing on YouTube, Rumble, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and review. You can also follow us on Twitter at UsefulIdiotPod. Thanks for supporting independent media. We'll see you next time. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.